If you have your Bible, turn to Romans 14 tonight. Romans chapter 14, we wrapped up 2 Thessalonians uh, last Sunday night, and so I'm in between um, series here, so I'm going to do a two-part series out of Romans chapter 14. We'll do verses 1 through 12 tonight, we'll do verses 13 through 23 next Sunday night, then my wife and I will be out of town, uh, preaching at a church in Texas, Lord willing, the last Sunday of July, pastor will be in the pulpit all day on that day, and then of course transition Sunday. And uh, then we will, we will jump uh, right into two brand new series. Um, after that, we will, on Sunday nights, we'll be beginning the book of 1 Samuel. On Sunday nights, and uh, I don't know if you've ever read through 1 Samuel. I'm sure you're familiar with many stories in the book of 1 Samuel. It's a longer narrative, and uh, I've been studying it for, for a couple of months now personally. and very, very excited about what God's going to do for our church through that. Then on Sunday mornings, we're going to start preaching through the book of Ephesians. And uh, excited about that. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But this is a mini-series to get us by until that time comes. And, 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 and I will say that, that these are two messages that I've preached before. And I want you to know that up front because I want you to know that this is not a, a, a demonstration of being lazy. Uh, on my part, or not willing to write new messages. I thrive on writing new messages. Uh, it's, it's like what I get to do. It's amazing. I love it. It's intentional. I preached these two messages three years ago. And Lord willing, if he lets me, I'm going to preach them at least every three years for the next 30 um, in our church. Here's why. Because a culture is created by what you emphasize and what you repeat. And our pastor has emphasized for the last nearly 20 years of his pastorate the principles of Romans 14. And it is one of the greatest things that God has used him to accomplish in this church. Is to make it a church that understands the difference between a black and white issue in scripture and a gray issue in scripture. And pastor has modeled and demonstrated and taught us over the course of many years how that we ought to navigate our way through the gray issues. The, the issues in our Christian life and in our church life that aren't so cut and dry in scripture and he's created a culture within this place of grace and mercy and charity and spirit-filled love in those areas and, and I'm committing myself to teaching and emphasizing Romans 14 every three years so that we continue to have this kind of culture within our church family so the message I'm preaching over the next two weeks is not a rebuke um, it might come off that way because I'm very passionate about Romans 14 and, and maintaining um, the unity around the gospel, mainly in our church, but, but it's a reminder. It's what our church needs. There are a lot of folks in this room even tonight that weren't here three years ago. So you're hearing this for the very first time, and I'm thankful to be able to introduce you to these principles. Before we get into our text, I, I want to I survey the audience, if you'll let me. And you can answer by just raising your hand. How many grew up in a Christian home? Would you raise your hand? How many grew up in a Christian home, a godly home? Okay, put your hands down. How many grew up in a, in a non-Christian home? You didn't go to church on a regular basis. About an equal number of hands. Let me get a little more specific. How many grew up in a Baptist home? Raise your hand. And I'm not, I'm not throwing shade at anybody that's not Baptist. Don't, don't get worried. I, wanna, I just want to... Now look around, look around, look around. All right? Now put your hand down. You grew up in a non-Baptist home. Raise your hand. It's okay. All right, all right, good. 
Um, how many got saved at an early age? Maybe before you were 12 years old. You got saved at an early age. All right, how many have been saved for only about five or ten years? Okay, look around. Everybody look around. About five or ten years. How many have been saved over 20 years? All right, very good. Now, here's the most important question I'll ask in the evening. I need you to be completely honest about it. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, and you only had three choices on what to eat, I'm telling you, this is deep. What would it be? You had a choice between steak, pizza, or tacos. How many would say steak? One more meal. All right, put your hands down. How many say tacos? All right, put your hands down. How many say pizza? Very good. Life-changing questions. I didn't add a fourth category. Don't start throwing out your favorite foods. Some of you are saying, Chinese, barbecue, Italian, whatever. I asked those questions because I wanted you to get a, a sense of how many different people assemble here every Sunday. Different backgrounds, uh, people from different denominational backgrounds, family backgrounds, spiritual backgrounds and how long they've been saved. I mean, we can't even agree on food. And don't you think that with this many differences in our own congregation, there would be potential from time to time for disagreements? Paul writes Romans 14, and it's preserved for us in Scripture today to teach us what to do when those differences become disagreements. That's the title of tonight's message, Getting Along When We Don't Agree. If you watch the news... They say this isn't possible. But in the church world, it is and it should be. Many years ago, a Scottish theologian by the name of John Dunn Scottish developed a pretty loyal group of followers. They were called the Dunsmen. When the supporters of another theologian, Thomas Aquinas, began to dispute and argue with the Dunsmen over some theological issues... Aquinas' boys turned the Dunsman's name into an insult that would become common language for years. You know what they called them? Dunces. Or dummies. Over a theological disagreement. Now think about that. An inter-church fight gave our world a long-running name for an idiot. Now if you're thinking, well that's the Catholic Church, that's not us Baptists. Then consider this quote from a book called The Baptist Story, which traces the history of the Baptist from England to today. Where two or three Baptists are gathered, it seems, three or four opinions are in the midst of them. <laughs> Sadly, the glorious history of the church, and it is glorious, includes some rather inglorious chapters. You know why? Because we were too busy arguing amongst ourselves to advance the gospel beyond ourselves. And in some ways that's not surprising. Because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has brought a wide assortment of people into his church over the years. Just in this church of Rome alone, there is the rich and the poor. The slave and the master. The former Gentile pagan and the former Jewish priest. 
and they all found themselves sharing the same sanctuary. Inevitably, listen, the kind of diversity that was in this church is going to lead to a difference of opinion. People from that many levels of life are simply not always going to see eye to eye on everything. And honestly, pastor, I don't mind that. Here's why. The unity that Jesus desires for his church is not uniformity. We are not all going to think alike and look alike and dress alike and vote alike or live alike in every way. Though we may agree wholeheartedly, and we should, on the truths that are essential to our faith in Jesus and the gospel, we will at times have different opinions on things that are not so clear and concrete in Scripture. So what do we do when those differences come to the surface as disagreements? Well, there's three headings that I'm going to put on this text. One's the conflict. Two is the, our conduct. And number three, what should be our concentration? Not normally how I would outline a passage, but it's the best way I can see it. So let's begin with the conflict. In our text, Paul describes two sincere but different believers. The weak brother or sister and the strong brother or sister. Let me give you an oversimplified summary of the weaker brother and the stronger brother. The weaker brother is the brother that needs stricter standards in his life or else he'll fall into sin. The stronger brother is able to have looser standards in his life and still remain holy. That's the difference. That's who's having a conflict in this church. What are they having a conflict over? Well, in the text, Paul tells us a couple of things. What they should eat and when they should worship. Look at verse number two. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eateth herbs. Now, what's that all about? You need to know this. The city of Rome was a city filled with idol worshipers. So, so most of the meat that was sold in the market had been presented to an idol um, before it was sold to the market. Some was actually offered to the idol. So what they would do is they would put this meal in front of this statue or this carved out idol. But because the idol was usually in an animate object, the meat was rarely eaten. So after they presented and it sat there for a while, they would go and take the meat and they would sell it at the market for a discounted rate. Yet some of the Roman Christians, particularly the Jewish ones in this church, felt like the fact that the meat had been offered to an idol earlier permanently tainted it. And to accept the discounted meat at the market would be to participate in idol worship. Plus a lot of meat was pork and Jews looked down on that anyway. So to avoid all of this, many Christians in this church, even after they got saved, simply refused to buy meat in the market and they ate only veggies. No doubt they were thinking, hey, it worked for Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Daniel, so it'll work for us. Yet other Christians in this church said, no, no, we know that idols are not really gods. There's only one God and Paul taught us that in Jesus' death, he, he cleansed all things for us, so hey, Pass the bacon. Now, we need to stop here and have a, a church survey again. I'm curious how many of you would be on Team Veggie. Raise your hand. Miss Jennifer would be on Team Veggie because she's spiritual. And Kinley would be on Team Veggie. How many would be on Team Meat Eater? Two hands up in the air. Jennifer, we still love you. I promise. We love you in here tonight. Sing a great song. You need to try a steak every now and then, though. 
That's the first thing that was creating conflict, meat. The second is found in verse 5. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Now what's this about? Well, there were Jewish Christians in the church who still thought that the Sabbath, which is our Saturday, was the day they should worship on. I mean, it had been this way in Israel for 1,500 years. Why change it now? Furthermore, they thought that even though they were Christians, they should still observe, observe Jewish holidays because God had established them for Israel to remind them of various things throughout the year. Now, listen, these believers understood um, that they weren't necessary for salvation. They had left Judaism. But they were observing them and thought that was still good because God had established them. Yet other Christians in the church who didn't have that background said, no, 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 wait a second. These things are part of the old law and the death of Jesus has completely released us from these things. So you observe special days if you want, but there's nothing inherently special in any day, so we're not going to. So the conflict's about meat and days. We don't have that conflict in Fellowship Baptist Church. And we might argue over what the best cut of meat is, but not whether we should eat it or not. But do you know that we still have some areas like meeting days that would be potential to create conflict? We still have our own Romans 14 issues where there are people on both sides of the aisle. Well, Paul mentioned their issues to them. I might as well mention our issues to us. Like matters of dress. One lady might be comfortable wearing an article of clothing that another lady doesn't feel comfortable wearing. One parent might let their teenage girl or, or boy wear something that another parent won't allow. Some Christian might come into Fellowship Baptist Church wearing certain attire, and the other Christian might say, I would never wear that to church. In fact, one church might expect something from their worship leaders on the stage or on the platform as a standard to, to keep the worship sacred and holy, and another church that you go to somewhere else might have a lower or a higher standard, or I should say a stricter or a looser standard. That is a Romans 14 issue. Here's what is not a Romans 14 issue. Modesty. That is the conviction. That's the principle. How we draw the standard, where we draw the line, is what we call a Romans 14 issue. There's matters of music. Personal listening music, church music. Some compartmentalize the music and genres of music and where that is appropriate and what it's appropriate for. You'll never talk to two worship leaders or pastors that agree on what music is appropriate in the church and what is not. Even among Baptists, it tends to be worship wars constantly. Romans 14 issue. Celebrating certain holidays. One might feel like, like, like dressing up for Halloween is okay. And having a trunk or treat to take advantage of what might have some pagan emphasis but, but spin it on its head and reach people through it. Some churches and some people might feel like that's great. But some people in our own church might feel very uncomfortable with that concept. Some people might have been raised a different way and their conscience has been informed from a, from a different influence. And, and so they're not as fond as Halloween as, as maybe you are and they don't let their kids trick or treat like they let you trick or treat because they're not comfortable with that. Or the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. 
I mean, we're going to have some church splits about Santa Claus, I'm sure, if I get going on that. There's political differences. In the local level, there's political differences. We have a county commission seat that's open, a couple. And I don't expect everybody in this church to vote for the same exact person. I expect you to be an informed voter and to base your vote on biblical principle. I don't expect you for you to vote on, for the same person. We're going to have a, a one-cent sales tax come up in our community. Some people in our church will be for it. Some people we, will be against it. Well, what does the Bible say? It's a Romans 14 issue. On the state level, there are going to be some things that, that, that aren't as black and white or, or a national level politically. Education. Homeschool. Christian school. Public school. I've yet to hear a solid, solid biblical reasoning for why one of those is God's choice. I have my own opinions on all these issues, by the way, but I'm not giving it to you. That's not the point. That's totally anti the point tonight. But here's what I want to say on this point of education. We have a Christian school on purpose. And I'm going to tell you why on Sunday night, August 9th. But here's what I'll also tell you. I'm not dying on that hill. Because I know, I know people like my wife that went through a public education system and had stellar parents and wonderful teachers and she, she graduated smart and holy. And it can happen. And I know homeschool parents that have done it right and homeschool kids that have graduated out of that kind of education system and they are thriving spiritually in their life. And I know people that have went to our Christian school and others that have done really well and really bad. And so I want you to know, even as you hear me emphasize our Christian school ministry and our little learner's academy that we're starting, I will never apologize for promoting it. Amen. I'll never apologize for saying, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right, and you ought to support it. Amen. I'll never apologize, but I'm the pastor. We'll be the pastor, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I really start getting after it, I will be. That's what I meant. I, I don't want, I want you to hear me close, because some that might be hearing my passion for it could interpret that as, oh, he's against every public school person in the world. That is not my heart. My mission field is the public school. I've reached a ton of kids from the public school. We have public school teachers in our church that are salt and light, and, and we need to pray for them. Goodness, we need to pray for them. So don't think that, that, that it's a conviction of mine. I still think it's a Romans 14 issue, but I am burdened that our kids get a biblical worldview as well as academics. I'm burdened for that. There's another one that I think maybe to be the most popular Romans 14 issue right now, and that's the issue of mask. I mean, we giggle, but it's true. that There, there are skirmishes going on everywhere, even in our own community, about who should wear a mask and who shouldn't wear a mask and where are we going to wear one, and they don't work, and they do work. They make you sick, they don't make you sick. You should work out in one, you'll die if you work out in one. Listen, friends, it's a Romans 14 issue. If, if one church member wants to wear a mask, they should feel free to wear a mask wherever they want to wear a mask, including our sanctuary. And if, and if one of our church members doesn't want to wear a mask, they should not be made out to be like a villain that doesn't love people. 
It's a Romans 14 issue. These are all issues that, are, that aren't uh, unequivocally settled in Scripture. Therefore, in a church our size, there will be all kinds of opinions and standards. And here's what I'm burdened to get across tonight. That's okay. Here's where the danger is in our differences. Because we're human, we, we have this thing in us called pride. That means when we're convinced about something, we by default think everybody else should be convinced of the same thing. Despite the fact that it's not clear in Scripture. And so when somebody holds a different opinion and they're equally as convinced of their opinion as we are of ours, what might potentially happen? Conflict. Arguments. Division. Exactly what Paul tells us to avoid. Let's study verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith, the one that thinks he needs to eat meat, or doesn't eat meat, rather, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Paul is saying there are going to be things that we disagree about in church, but they shouldn't divide us. If the weaker brother feels like it's necessary for him to have a stricter standard when it comes to food, fine, receive him. And don't let a disputable, doubtful issue cause you to argue and separate. Now let me make this clear. Paul's not saying that there's never anything the church shouldn't divide over. If you think that, you haven't read his letters. I'll just give you two things that he, he's identified in two different letters that should make us separate. In Galatians, Paul says, if anybody comes to you and teaches you a different gospel than the one that I've taught you, you should label him as a false teacher. He should be accursed and not let anywhere near the church property. Amen. Read Galatians. 1 Corinthians, if someone is, is practicing open immorality, cohabitation, sex before marriage, heterosexual immorality or homosexual immorality, and Paul says, if they will not repent, remove them from the fellowship. It's what he says. But listen, not everything we differ on in the church rises to that level. A theologian by the name of Michael Byrd gives three levels of importance for issues in the church that I found helpful. Here's the first, matters essential for salvation. What are those? Deity of Christ, virgin birth of Christ, blood atonement. Those are matters essential for salvation and many more, but, but those are very, very clear in Scripture. Here's the second area. Matters that are important to the faith and the church, though not necessary for salvation. That's we're talking about the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, the understanding of morality and gender and marriage. By the way, those first two categories are almost always spelled out clearly in Scripture. There's no arguing going on. It's too clear. But then there's a third, and he calls it matters of indifference. Non-essentials, debatable things, gray areas, preferences, and opinions. Those things that I just mentioned and many more. Paul's teaching us, don't argue and separate over matters of indifference. Rather, he says, do this, receive one another. What does that word mean? Well, it doesn't mean you just put up with the person. No, you study it. It's the same Greek word that is used in John chapter 14 and verse 3 to describe how Jesus will receive us into heaven. The verse says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Do you think that means forbearance? Like, okay, if I have to let you in, come on. His arms are open wide and receiving us. 
So on disputable matters, we don't just put up with our brother and sister and roll our eyes and huff and puff and subtweet them all day long. No, we receive them with the grace that God receives us with. And on top of that, he says in verse 3, we receive them precisely because he has received them. Let's study verse 3. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. In other words, who are you, church member, to look down on somebody that has looked up to Jesus and found his arms open to them? He says in verse 4, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up. For God is able to make him stand. What is Paul saying? You think maybe that your brother is a little loose in where he goes or what he does. Or perhaps you think that sister is just an old prude who doesn't understand the liberty of grace. And she's too strict and conservative. Here's what Paul's saying. Frankly, you don't need to argue with them because they don't serve you. You're not their master. Jesus is. And he's quite capable of holding them up and helping them to get right if they're wrong. Now follow this. It's not that we can't have healthy dialogue about these disputable matters. We, we should be spiritually mature enough to be able to engage in good conversation about those things. They're not taboo. We can talk about them in a right way. We just have to be careful not to engage in a way or, or on any platform that has potential to create division. Whether that be in person or via text message or email or social media. Listen, spiritual maturity, please get this if you don't get anything else tonight. Spiritual maturity is not revealed by how you stand for things that are clearly spelled out in Scripture. That's too easy. That's too obvious. Spiritual maturity is revealed most by how you deal with the matters of indifference. The gray areas. If you can't keep from engaging in a way or posting in a way that creates division or argumentation over non-essentials, you are marking yourself as someone that lacks spiritual maturity. You lack temperance, plain and simple. Spirit-controlled temperance. If you can't genuinely receive your brother and sister in Christ because they don't vote like you do and they don't have a lot in common with you in some of these gray areas, there is clearly a lack of spiritual maturity in your life. You are not receiving your brother and sister like Jesus received you. Which leads us to the next point Paul makes. And that's our conduct. You see, those, though the things that the weak and strong believers disagree about are not worth arguing about, watch here, that doesn't mean they don't matter. They certainly matter to them. The question is, what principles should guide our conduct? I thought of two things. We've got to remember two things. You ready? This is so important. Number one, we got to remember there is a subjective factor in our conduct. There is a subjective factor in our conduct. Look at carefully at verse 5. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. We already talked about that. How did Paul solve this issue? He said this, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Okay. You might look at that and say, Paul's being kind of wish-washy. He just needs to stand behind a pulpit of wood and tell him how things, is, things are. Well, he knew it was a Romans 14 issue. Unless you think he's being wishy-washy, he said, let every man be fully persuaded. Like, don't have one foot over here and one foot over here. Do your research, study your Bible, use your brain, follow the Holy Spirit, and be fully persuaded in your mind. 
unless you think that Paul didn't have an opinion on these issues, look at verse 14. I'll just show you he did. This is next week's sermon, but look at it. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Guess what? Paul was a meat eater. He was on team steak a lot. And you go to Colossians 2, and he made it real clear in Colossians 2 where he stood on days. Okay, he wasn't with the weaker brother on these issues of days and meats. In fact, he thinks the weaker brother's wrong in this instance. But that's what makes this passage so helpful. Because Paul knows and he shows us what to do with people in the church who you disagree with on things you think are important. He says, let every man be persuaded in his own mind. In other words, this is a matter that you have to settle using your own God-given conscience. That's where the subjective nature of our conduct comes in. Now, we don't talk about conscience much anymore. And that's a tragedy because I think our conscience is a gift from God. You know what it is? It's like this, this type of moral intuition where you know something before you can articulate it. It's like before your head knows it, your heart feels it. That's your conscience. Tim Keller writes, Paul says that we need to think out our behavior. We need to see whether the Bible really commands or forbids some practice, or whether it leaves the conscience free. If it does leave the conscience free, we have to then decide if our conscience feels any conviction about doing it or not doing it. The point is, that you should obey your conscience and never do anything that you're not fully persuaded of in your mind. But get this, that doesn't mean your conscience can't ever be wrong. And it doesn't mean that your conscience can't be better informed. It's not infallible. You should always be growing and gaining biblical insight that will inform your conscience. You should be humble enough that you're willing to back down on something or you're willing to tighten up on something after being shown a better way. You have to be humble enough to accept that. I think of Peter who, whose conscience was bothered when he ate with Gentiles. Do you remember that? He thought it was impure. That's how he was raised. That's how he was influenced. But yet Paul told him in Galatians chapter 2 that his conscience was wrong and he needed to get more in line with the gospel. And he did, thank goodness. So there might be some things in your past that inform your conscience in terms of dress or, or music or education or politics. It's possible, church, that those who influenced your conscience in the past weren't lined up with the principles of Scripture as much as you thought they were. Whether that meant they were holding the line too tight or too loose. If that's ever the case, have a spirit of humility and flexibility if God sends something or somebody your way to better inform your conscience. Does that make sense? It does to three people. I know I'm laboring. I know I'm laboring, so help me out tonight. Like, this is really important. Because we'll take a phrase, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind, and we will use that phrase to justify a wrong standard. So when God sends somebody your way and shows you a better way, and they say, you know what, you're too loose in that area, and as a brother in Christ or some message informs you, you need to be willing to tighten up. But if, you, if you've been too tight, based on past influences and whatever area of life that's not clearly spelled out in Scripture, then God help us to be flexible and back down where that's necessary, or at least be, be not so noisy about it. Yeah. So there's a subjective factor. But you've got to know also there's a supreme factor. 
here in our content. Listen, you got to think through these Romans 14 issues yourself, but you don't have to think through them by yourself. Paul says in verse 6, look at this. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. Look at verse 7. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. What's Paul saying? He's saying that, that one who chooses to eat whatever he wants does so, not just because he wants to, but because he feels like he can eat that unto the Lord and give thanks for it. So when you see um, in this verse is that our conduct as believers is connected to our relationship um, to Jesus as the Lord of our lives. Are you hearing me? I don't care if it's masks or how you vote or what you listen to in your, in your AirPods. Whatever you listen to, eat, wear, dress, whatever. You, are able, you should be able to do that unto the Lord. Well, I'm fully persuaded in my own mind, so don't judge me. Well, I'll talk about that in a moment. I'm not judging you at all. I'm saying what Paul said. You live, you live unto the Lord. You eat, you eat unto the Lord. You listen to a song, you listen to it unto the Lord. You go to an event on the weekend, you go to that event under the Lord. And, and, and let me just sum it up. Here's what Paul's trying to say. We should filter every Romans 14 issue through this question. You ready? Can I do this in a relationship with Jesus and thank him for it? That's exactly, what, that's exactly his point. He said these people that think they can eat meat, and these people think they can eat herbs, both of them can do it. And afterwards, say thank you, Lord. So ask yourself, can I with a clear conscience and an absence of Holy Spirit conviction, watch this, wear this, listen to this, vote for them, and then thank God for it, knowing he's okay with it. Is that fair? Yeah. But in these Romans 14 issues, you've got to use your own Bible and your own brain. Your own walk with God. I can't lord over you and nobody should lord over you in those issues. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying there's a subjective factor that allows you to follow the Lord individually and be guided by your own conscience. At the same time, there's this supreme factor where even though you have liberty to make a personal decision, that decision must be led by the Lord himself and not your own feelings or ideas. So let's look at the last heading of the text. And that's what should we concentrate on? We're not supposed to concentrate on, on our differences. So, so what are we supposed to concentrate on? Well, Paul tells us on whom we ought to focus in verse 9. Look, for to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord, both of the living and the dead. So what's Paul doing? This is beautiful. He's taking these intramural differences between believers and this church and he plants them under one large umbrella called the gospel. And this, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus were for the purpose of him earning the lordship over all his 
people. By the way, he has earned lordship over your life. Therefore, focus on your Lord. And if you're focusing on him, then Paul's next question in verse 10 is a reasonable one. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? He's saying if, if he is Lord over all his people, including you, then why do you got to be Lord over your brother's life? Then why do you got to look down on someone under his lordship? I love the way John Stott put it. He said this, because he is our Lord, we must live for him. Because he is also Lord of our fellow Christians, we must respect their relationship to him and mind our own business. You see, if you really understand, listen to me, friend, that Jesus is Lord of you, and I really understand that Jesus is Lord over me, then both of us ought to have enough focus on him to keep us occupied from here to eternity without getting too worried about what anyone else might be doing. I'll say it clearer. If you trust that he's a capable Lord over you, and I bet you you do, then you must also trust that he is certainly capable of being Lord over your brothers and sisters in Christ. And he doesn't need your assistance to supervise their sanctification. How many of you have kids that have ever tried to be a family informant? They slink up to you with insider information on what they, you know, their sibling is doing. They, they want to gain some sort of immunity for themselves by doing it. At one point or another, I bet you, you probably told your child, you let me worry about them. You just take care of you. And Paul essentially says to us, you let Jesus worry about what everyone else is doing. You take care of you. And you have plenty to take care of regarding yourself and your Lord. And notice the end of verse 10 because he tells us on what we ought to focus. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We don't have time, church, please listen, to judge each other on matters that are disputable, doubtful, and non-essential because there is a perfect judgment coming for every single one of us. In fact, Paul in verse 11 borrows from the prophet Isaiah and says that every person's going to bow down to the Lord and confess his lordship. And then it reminds us in verse 12 of the day we will all give an account. Look at verse 12. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Notice carefully, he says we're going to give account of ourselves to God. Now I just preached a couple months ago on the ministry of mutual accountability. So if another brother or sister comes to you and they love you and they've invested in your life and you trust one another and they call you on something, please don't tell them stop judging me. Please look to them and say, thank you for caring enough about me to tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. There's a difference here. We're talking about nitpicky, non-essential, not clear in scripture issues. Judging and despising is a lot more, uh, 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 the approach has much more severity than mutual accountability does. Don't have that kind of spirit towards one another. Why? Because you're going to stand before God and they're going to stand before God. And you need to focus on you standing before God. In fact, Jerry Hogsett, he's, he's a researcher with the USDA, and he tells about a problem that can affect cattle. You know what he calls it? Fly worry. 
And he says that a cow can become so obsessed with shooing flies away that it forgets about eating and eventually starves itself. And I thought, man, I think that's a lot of Christians. So focused on shooing away the flies in other people's lives. Spending our time arguing and disputing over these non-essential matters that we forget to keep focus on our own spiritual health. I'll close with this. So good. The Roman emperor Julian disliked Christianity. That wasn't a secret. At one point, he did something unusual. He called all the bishops together and demanded that they work out all their differences. Not surprisingly, he found out that rather than working out their differences, that highlighted them more and it ended up dividing them more than ever. Here's what Julian said, and don't miss this. No wild beasts are as dangerous to man as Christians are to each other. Isn't it sad that anybody would say such a thing? And you know what's sadder? We have proven that sort of thinking to be true. When we come together as believers, listen to me, there will always be differences. But the differences between us are easily bridged by the gospel that brought us together in the first place. Paul says, one Lord Jesus died to save us all from our sins. He's risen from the dead and lives to be the Lord over each and all of our lives. And with him over us, church, we can and should get along when we don't agree. How do we respond to this message? Three words come to mind. The first word is grace. Are you showing grace towards your brother and sister in Christ that are obviously different than you in Romans 14 matters? Only you know that. Well, if you're on social media, some people know whether or not you are. Spiritual maturity is the next phrase. Because you might think you're spiritually mature because of how strong your stand is on issues that are clear in Scripture. But that's not a good measurement for spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity can truly be revealed by how you respond and treat others that are different from you in issues that aren't as clear in Scripture. How are you doing in that? Measure yourself by that standard. Are you receiving your brother and sister? The third word is this, unity. May God help us to seek unity, not uniformity. May God help every member of Fellowship Baptist Church to gird themselves with this mindset that not everybody has to be just like me for me to receive them the same way Christ has received me. And God help us to show that kind of grace, spiritual maturity, and unity in areas like Romans 14 spells out. That's a culture I will fight for in this church because it's one that makes the gospel the main thing. And we don't back off on other things. There are things clear in Scripture, and if you don't want my opinion on things that aren't clear in Scripture, I'll give it to you. I'm fully persuaded in my own mind, but I know that you might be different than me. But we all fall under the umbrella of the gospel saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think he's a good enough Lord in your life. I don't have to be. I'll answer to Christ. And I need to worry about that instead of shooing the flies out of your life. If you agree and appreciate the Bible, say amen. amen. Stand to your feet every head.